Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Your psychological health and well-being, your physical health and well-being, and even how long you're going to live is best predicted by the number and quality of close friendships you have. It's not all friendships, it's this little core in the center of round about five uh, kind of best friends and family. The, the number you have in that inner circle and the quality of those friendships is a very, very strong predictor of both your psychological and physical health and well-being. It's quite extraordinary, you know. That's Robin Dunbar. His research over the last 20 years hasn't just found the number five for the number of friends that are important to your well-being. He's also figured out the total number of friends you can have meaningful relationships with. And that number, 150, has become a meme known now as Dunbar's number. This is going to be great. I've never interviewed anybody who had their own number before. <laughs> I've had a tarantula named after me, but never a number. A tarantula, Alan. Dunbar's number. Tell me what Dunbar's number is. I might preface that by saying that somebody did point out that there are only about uh, 10 people who've had numbers named after them, and most of them are already dead. So this is kind of <laughs> bad news. <laughs> so... Uh, what's Dunbar's number? Dunbar's number is the limit on the number of friends and family that you can have meaningful relationships with. And um, this is characteristic of all monkeys and apes, but obviously the, the actual number, the size, varies with, with the species. So humans having a much bigger brain have bigger numbers, and that's because the kind of typical size of social group for a species is simply a consequence of the size of the brain that the species has, or to be more specific, the kind of big chunk at the front that does all the management of our relationships. That's the key key thing. So the bigger that chunk in the front is, the greater our circle of friends is liable to be? Yes. And, and is it true that you got the idea from studying monkeys? Yes, yes. I was actually <laughs> spent the first half of my career studying monkeys and uh, and also antelope uh, in, in the wild, as it were, in Africa mainly. And um, it was trying to explain actually a rather trivial problem, namely why monkeys and apes spend so much time grooming with each other that um, I had the idea of plotting 
group size in, in different species of monkey against the size of their brains. And it produces very nice relationship. And I thought, well, you know, we know what the size of brain of humans is. Uh, we have it in the same data set. Let's just plug it in and see. And it predicted this uh, number of 150, which at the time I thought that can't be right. That's really very small. Um, but I, I kind of thought, well, actually, you know, what we're really dealing with here in evolutionary terms is the size of hunter-gatherer group. So is the size of a hunter-gatherer group around 150 on average? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's somewhere between 100 and 200. I think the average was 148. And, you know, I've spent the last 25 years, uh, or the second 25 years of my research career, sort of exploring this issue then as a result of this uh, eureka moment, if you like. Um, and there's lots and lots of data that, that people have, other people have found, we've found. So one really nice one is 800 years worth of it, uh, village sizes in the Alps in Italy from about 1200 through to um, the 19th, uh, 19th century. The modal value is somewhere like 145. You know, another nice example is the Hutterites, which uh, folks from the Dakotas will be familiar with because that's where most of them live in the in in the US and they always split their farms their communities when they get above 150 oh. uh, in fact the average size at which they split is 165 um, and they they're quite explicit as to why that is because they say you know if you get much above 150 say beyond 200 then you cannot run the community as a democratic community, you know, is the face-to-face -face, um, social uh, arrangement. You have the, to have a police force and laws and courts and all these things to enforce discipline on the community. As long as you keep the number small, sort of round about 150 or below, then people are responding to each other as friends and a uh, family, and, you know, they will stick to the rules. I, I think I noticed that phenomenon when I was a, a young actor and I would drive home after the matinee to New Jersey from Broadway and, and drive home after the matinee to have dinner at home and then drive back to the theater at night for the evening show and trying to get on the West Side Highway to get to the George Washington Bridge was difficult because traffic was heavy and the mm -hmm. only way I could get a car to slow down enough for me to get onto the highway was to make eye contact with the driver. Up until wow. then, he was anonymous and free to ignore me. And as soon as I got to the small town in New Jersey where we lived, the traffic was more polite. People were making way right. for one another. Yes. Still a, still a large town compared to 150 size village. But it, it, the, the idea that you're known by other people, that they witness your behavior, yes. Yes. seems to be a factor. Yes, I, I'm sure that's, that, that's absolutely true. And I, I think you see lots of examples uh, in everyday experience of that. And, you, you know, we wonder kind of why we end up with these uh, sink estates in, 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 in the big cities, you know, which are sort of pirate country basically bandit country and you think, well you know, there are just too many people there nobody knows who anybody is 
You know, if you, you, you're much politer and much kinder and much uh, less willing to rob or, or whatever people you know. Um, you just behave better, basically. So what are the factors for humans in making and keeping friends? In, in monkeys, I suppose it has a lot to do with grooming one another. Do we have substitute grooming activities that, that we use to establish friendships? Actually, the short answer is yes and no. Uh, it's no in the <laughs> sense that we still use grooming much, much more than we realize. Um, it, obviously, the difference between us and, and uh, the other monkeys and apes is we kind of don't have a lot of fur. So the kind of attraction of leafing through fur uh, that um, uh, motivates um, grooming in, in monkeys and apes kind of doesn't exist. But what we've done is adapt that to forms of physical touch, which are essentially the same. So stroking and caressing and hugging, all these things do exactly the same thing as grooming does. So the, the reason grooming works in primates is the motion of the hand across the surface of the, the hair and the skin underneath triggers a very specialized neural system which releases chemicals in the brain called endorphins which give you this sense of warmth and kind of coziness and all's well with the world and i'm full of trust with whoever i'm doing this this with but who does that to one another i mean once in a while while i'm having my shoes shined i, I get a sensation like that but otherwise people that don't often do that oh no you do it you do it all the time with the people who are meaningful to you. That, that doesn't include the whole 150 in your social network or, you know, I, I you, hope not. Your, your social network may be even bigger than that, may, may run up to about 200 if you're very kind of extrovert and, uh, uh, and uh, very socially active. But uh, remember that the 150 is just the average. It, this sort of use of physical touch in conversations just goes on all the time with probably the inner 50 of those. So that's the 50 most mm. meaningful friends and family. And you're casually doing it all the time without really thinking. We don't notice, I think, is what happens. Oh, of, that's of possible. Course, you know, heaven forfend, uh, Mr. Older. Yeah. You know, one wouldn't do this kind of thing with strangers. Well, I, 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 also, <laughs> I also wonder if it isn't uh, bound by the culture because... Graham Chad, who produces this podcast, we've been friends for 30 years. He originally comes from England. And yeah. uh, in America, friends who have been together for 30 years hug each other. But every time I try to hug Graham, he recoils <laughs> with fear in his eyes as if I'm offering something bubonic. This is why he likes to do things online. <laughs> so, I, I mean, does it depend... Where you, where people are in your circle of friends, depending on the culture, uh, the cultural attributes. Well, and, I, I I think you sh I think you should ask Graham this. This is a very pertinent question. But I don't the, want to get I, too personal with him. <laughs> <laughs> He's already hard we, to we, deal with. <laughs> we um we have actually looked at this all over Europe. So you know, from the north up in Finland down to Italy in the south and east to west from the British Isles right the way across to Russia. And we get pretty much the same pattern 
all over Europe and as far afield as Japan. There are minor differences, you know, and yes, the British are a little bit more standoffish than the other Europeans, but not that much. It was pretty much the same picture. So I think it's this is stuff that's just bubbling along underneath, in, you know, the sort of surface of consciousness that we that is important. And it's important that we do it because, as I often say, you know, the way somebody touches you, the stroke on the arm or a arm on the shoulder or something, is worth a thousand words any day in what mm. they tell you about the relationship. Okay, so, you know, if, if this sort of grooming-type relationship is bubbling along under the surface, but it's limited to 50 people, you know, how have we scaled up our social network size, the number of friends we have, to the 150 or so that uh, we actually do have. And 50 turns out to be the limiting size for primate groups. No species has an average group size larger than that. Now, what humans have done is discovered over the course of our relatively recent evolution, some of it is very recent, it's historical rather than even, is that it's possible to trigger this endorphin response in the brain by a number of other activities. And these activities have come to be central to our uh, social toolkit, if you like. And they are things like laughter, um, singing and dancing, singing in a wordless sense, just a humming, if you like, around the campfire. And then once language evolved, the rituals of religion, uh, feasting, uh, eating and drinking socially together, and lastly, the storytelling, and particularly telling emotional stories. And we've shown that all of these trigger the endorphin system in the brain, and they trigger this increased sense of bonding. And, and, and you know, I always come back to singing on this, because singing seems to be absolutely instantaneous. I mean, we, we've done experiments with people um, you know, so these are complete novices uh, for whom we set up a, a singing class or it was a sort of course of, of weekly classes. And that was quite spectacular because just an hour of singing together, and I'm not talking about singing Verdi arias or anything fancy. I'm talking about, you know, round a campfire community singing, just mm. plain good old uh, stuff. An hour of that and people who are complete strangers uh, emerge from that feeling that they are have been friends for life. And actually this kind of is interesting because, I mean, I'm sure you all know this well enough, is I'm, I'm told there's a kind of saying, if you like, among theatre directors that an audience comes in to the theatre as strangers, but it goes out as a community yeah, if, especially if the play if has a, worked. Especially if it's a comedy Laughing together exactly, yes. so opens laughing you up together. to one yeah. another. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, the, the benefits of getting together in the first place, is it really so? Has it really been shown to be true that the more friends you have, the longer you live? Uh, indeed it has. And I think this has been the big kind of surprise of the last mm, 15 years, something of that order. Um, is the sort of huge volume of work that's emerged um, showing that the best predictor of your psychological health and well-being, your physical health and well-being, and even how long you're going to live into the future from the present moment, as it were, is best predicted 
by the number and quality of close friendships you have. It's not all friendships. It's this little core in the center of round about five uh, kind of best friends and family. The, the number you have in that inner circle and the quality of those friendships is a very, very strong predictor of both your psychological and physical health and well-being. It's quite extraordinary. You know, we, we could do without doctors. Yeah. <laughs> If we could fix the loneliness problem, <laughs> we could do without doctors. Get a doctor as a friend, then you're then you're yeah, you're yeah, in. You're right. <laughs> so you're talking about circles of friends, more closely connected to a few people, and then mm. less well connected to other people. And the circle, finally, the largest circle, rounds out to about 150. Actually, these circles of friendship, as we've taken to calling them are really quite extraordinary because they start very, very close in. The innermost circle is one and a half. What does that mean? How can you have half a friend? <laughs> I was hoping you'd ask that if I fed it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, come up with an answer to that. Let me say, first of all, and explain the background to that, actually. When we first discovered this, what we had found was a series of circles that went 5, 15, 50, 150. And then we know it goes on beyond that because there's a layer at about 500, which is acquaintances, and a layer at 1,500, which is faces we can put names to. And a layer, it turns out, at 5,000, which is faces we can recognize that we've seen before, but we don't know who most of those are. And I, I used to show these, these uh, patterns uh, in talks, and I used to say, you know, think about it. There's a layer missing here. Uh, uh, you know, just backtrack. Everything, th these layers have a very distinct mathematical signature. Each circle is three times the size of the circle inside it, right? Just backtrack down and see what happens. And where do you get to? Well, of course, you get to a layer of one and a half. And everybody would say exactly what you said. How can you have one and a half? Well, the answer, Mr. Older, is very simple. Half the population has two, and the other half has one. Now, oh, who... <laughs> <laughs> you're not talking about an individual. Yeah, this is, these, are average, these are averages, remember. And I used to say this is because the girls uh, can manage, uh, because they're much more kind of acute and sharp on, uh, in social terms, can manage two intimate friends at the same time, but the boys can only manage one. And that turns out to be the explanation. Has yeah. that been borne out, that stereotype, uh, that women are better at friendship than men are? They can talk more intimately oh, yes. with one another oh, and so yes. on? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, just to give you one example of that, I mean, we, um, uh, if you look at women's social networks, they that inner, inner circle, what they will often have is a romantic partner and then a best friend forever, or BFF as they've come to be known in the, in the, in the technical literature, as they say. Um, uh, and that BFF will usually be a female, not always, but about 85% of them will be, a, if you like, a best girlfriend, right? Um, now, if you look at the boys, the men, on the other hand, uh, what you tend to find is that they either have one or the other. So they either have a romantic partner uh, or they have a kind of best male friend that they go doing whatever guys do with most often. 
um, they they very very rarely have the two together uh, compared to, to to women. It's not to say that no men uh, ever have one of each at the same time, but that and that partly that's because and lots of people have kind of commented and, and, uh, on this from their research that men's friendships are more club like. So um, uh, they tend to be, so we've shown this on, on Facebook, for example, uh, uh, men's profile pictures are much more likely to be a picture of four or five guys on the top of a mountain or in canoes or whatever it is they do, you know, uh, whereas the girls will tend to be, uh, you know, either perhaps me and my romantic partner, but very often me and my best girlfriend. And we think that's because girls, is, the women establishes very intense, uh, personalised, friendships where the the identity of the person really matters to the friendship whereas guys live in this much more kind of casual social world where the identity of the person matters much less than whether you're a member of a club and that's reflected in uh, sex differences in how friendships are then bonded because girls tend to be use conversation much much more and that makes and you know if you if they want to keep a friendship going they've got to you know make find some way of talking to each other even if that's just on facebook whereas talking together has zero effect and i mean zero effect on whether a man's relationship will continue uh, into the future if they're not physically able to get together what makes the difference to the man is being able to do more of whatever activity they used to do as part of that club When we come back from our break, we pick up on the remarkable discovery Robin Dunbar talked about earlier, that the core group of friends you have predicts your health and even your lifespan. My question is, how? Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alda Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. 
In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Robin Dunbar. You mentioned Facebook. People on Facebook are given the impression that they have sometimes hundreds or thousands of friends. But it's not the same as having a friend in the context that we're talking of, is it? No, and that's actually a kind of urban myth. I mean, yes, it's probably one of the commonest uh, comments I get in response to the suggestion that there is a limit at about 150. Oh, but, you know, my friend Jimmy has 2,000 friends on Facebook. Um, and the answer is, well, Jimmy might, but just check out yours and check out everybody else's you know. I mean, it is kind of interesting because the people that have looked at the num- size of number of friends on Facebook repeatedly find that most people only have somewhere between 100 and 250. And in fact, there was one compilation published about eight years ago, which looked at 61 million Facebook pages. So you're all probably in there <laughs> somewhere. Uh, and the average size, average number of friends on, on on Facebook pages was 149. And I have to say, Alan, that is so close to 150. I'm going to retire and go to the Bahamas uh, to, to, <laughs> on the strength of that. That's good enough for me. <laughs> I love the story of the Swedish TV host who wanted to test out your yes. idea that he wasn't as close to all his friends on Facebook as he thought he was. Yes. What, 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 how, what, how did that work out for him? <laughs> Rather badly, I, I gathered. So, you know, I, I mean, journalists, and I suppose actors probably do, you know, it's, it, Facebook provides you with a kind of uh, valuable um, uh, you know, way of maintaining contact with your uh, fan club, as it were. So like all good journalists, this, this young guy is probably in his 30s at the time. He hosted a regular uh, weekly um, chat show which was very, very popular, apparently. Anyway, he had I, probably the full 5,000, for all I know. Anyway, he decided that he would go around um, the world, if necessary, with a film crew and meet every single uh, one of the people on his Facebook page, just to prove that I was wrong. Um, and he said it really was quite mm. funny because, you know, he, he actually turned up at somebody's wedding and invited, um, you know, complete with camera crew. Uh, and things like that. Uh, But he said, and he actually, you know, when he reported back on his chat show, uh, having done, done all this, you know, he said, no, I was right. Um, There were only about 150 people that were really happy to see him. And one or two people slammed the door in his face. (laughs) (laughs) Some friend. Let me let me get back to the idea that having all these friends makes you live longer. Uh, how how does having friends make you live longer? What's going on there? Okay, well, I think this has been kind of a puzzle, and I, I'm not sure there is a, a, a complete answer to the, to this question. But yet, 
Um, but there, it seems to me that there are two kind of ways. One is, um, you know, if you have a bunch of um, good friends like that, when you fall sick, they're going to bring you around a bowl of chicken soup, right? They'll do things for you, um, help you out, tide you over, come and patch you up, all those kind of physical things. And that's probably important. But I suspect that the real benefit actually comes through the endorphin system because the endorphin system does two things. So endorphins are opioids. They're kind of chemically similar to morphine, which is where the name comes from, endogenous morphine. But they give you the same kind of sense of relaxation and contentedness and happiness um, that all the opioids do. Um, and I think therein lies part of this if effect that they have is they just lift your spirits and make you feel better and, uh, uh, and make you feel, you know, if you're depressed, it's the best antidepressant you can have, you know, go out and have a, uh, uh, a lunch with a friend and uh, go for a walk in the park with a friend and ha have a chat with them. You know, it just lifts your spirit. Um, but it, then it turns out in addition that one of the things the endorphins do is trigger the immune system. And they trigger the immune system components, the, the, the um, uh, natural killer cells in particular, one of whose jobs is to seek and destroy um, uh, foreign viruses entering the body, which obviously is a very good idea in the current circumstances, but also mm. certain kinds of cancer cells as well. So it kind of looks like one of the side benefits, if you like, of the endorphin system and all the things we do to trigger the endorphin system with our friends is that um, it, it actually impacts directly on the body's ability to uh, control and manage and overcome the diseases to which we are, um, you know, inevitably subjected. And indeed, there's, there's a lot of evidence that, for example, if you get people to uh, laugh and you know, show them comedy or uh, films or something like that in hospital after surgery, they actually recover faster from things like major surgery or, or from illnesses than, um, you know, if you just give them the ordinary treatment. And, and it's free, Alan. Comedy is free. <laughs> <laughs> you, you raise an interesting question when you refer to uh, the current pandemic. Are people making fewer friends? Are they getting too much distance from the friends they have? What's happening? Bear in mind, your friendship circles consist of half family and half friends, typically on average. Varies a bit, obviously. Um, the family relationships tend to be very robust. Friendships tend to be much more you and them, and they're the ones that are weaker. Now, I think if your kind of inner core best friends are going to be almost really in the family class of relationship and they're not going to it's going to take a lot to destabilize them whereas uh, the sort of further out you go sort of let's say beyond the 15 layer of friendships those are the ones that are going to be particularly susceptible to being weakened by not seeing them now you don't have to see those people all that often at the best of times to keep those friendships sort of ticking over but you know, if we've got a long period of lockdown of the length that we've had, it's going to have a negative effect on those friendships. Now, you know, the question then is, is that kind of good or bad? And the answer is, well, actually, our friendships turn over anyway. And certainly in 18 to 20 somethings, 
our data and I think other people's data suggests the turnover rates are very, very high. It's something like 40% of friendships change layer, change circle every year, mm. right? Now, that's a consequence of simply not seeing them um, and not having much more to do with them. So that causes the friendship to kind of decay and they drop down through the, through the, through the layers of, uh, of the circles. It, it, the youngsters will find it frustrating and so on, but the people I worry most about are the old folks like you and me, because <laughs> we're at a stage of life where, you know, if, if friends move away or, or we lose them for some reason, you know, we kind of don't have the energy or the motivation to go out and m- meet new people. And we've not, not kind of done that for 20 years or something. So there's this kind of tendency for old people's social networks from about 65, 70 onwards to kind of contract inwards till you, you know, sort of and become smaller and smaller and smaller. And because they're not kind of replacing lost friends and uh, and they're not sort of making this effort to get up and go out. And I think what lockdown may well have done is just increase the rate at which that happens. Well, if you think about that for two minutes, you'll kind of see the obvious consequences. In other words, uh, if you're, you know, as... Um, Two years down the line, uh, after the beginning of lockdown, your social network is uh, smaller. That's going to impact on your health and, and well-being. And you're so, already so. in a vulnerable position and with regard to exactly, the pandemic. Yeah, and so it's, so multiplied. it's just going to make it worse. Yeah. Yeah. It, it interests me a lot how people are drawn to one another and then become friends. And I've read your saying that uh, shared interest has a lot to do with it. Uh, yes. uh, maybe especially having a similar sense of humor. And I, yes. I saw that in my own life. <laughs> the second time uh, I was in the same room with the woman who had become my wife, we were at a long dinner table and she was a few people down the table. But I heard her laughing at my jokes. And starting that evening, we were inseparable. It's now been 65 years. Yeah. There you go. So, Confessions what, of Alan Older we have here. What, what's the, uh, and now, now one, one reading of that is I just liked anybody who laughed at my jokes. But the other reading is I sensed that we shared a, the same yes. view of the world. You did interesting work, I think, getting people to, to rate jokes as funny how did this study work um, this was exactly the problem we were interested in is you know why do two people become friends so we asked people to rate all their friends and family um well not all of them but uh, selected members um on a whole list of things and then we kind of looked at what these things and, and what emerged out of that was what we call the seven pillars of friendship so these were seven kind of dimensions if you like of things uh, that you shared in common uh, with the friend or the family member. Um, And it turned out that the more of those dimensions you shared with a person, the stronger the friendship was, the more willing you were to be altruistic, to help them out and uh, and when they're in difficulty and so on. Now, those seven dimensions were sharing the same language or better still the same dialect. Uh, In other words, you came from the same community uh, effectively, um, growing up in the same area, 
Um, and again, I think it's, you know, you know the people there, you know how people think, you know the same streets as I do. We went in the same coffee bars as teenagers. <laughs> oh, yes, do you remember, you know, and all these kind of things. It creates that sense of belonging to the same community. Um, same educational trajectory. So, you know, oh, yes, uh, we're both actors or, you know, we're both lawyers or we're both both medics. We have something in common to talk about. Uh, which is clearly why, you know, if you look at the friends of uh, the medical profession, they're, most of them are medics. If you look at lawyers' friends, notoriously, they're all lawyers. Um, uh, then uh, there's having the same uh, hobbies and interests, having the same worldview, which is a composite of kind of religious views, moral views, political views. And then the last two, the really interesting ones, having the same musical tastes and having the same sense of humor. And so we were intrigued by this. So we ran a particular study on the sense of humor, in which we got a um, compilation of the 100 best jokes of all time and had some people rate them for being funny or not. And we took the kind of 20 jokes which people uh, disagreed about most, as it were. And that was your kind of uh, humor profile, if you like. And then a week later, we kind of emailed these people back and said, by the way, there's this person here uh, we think you might be interested in being a friend with. Uh, here's their humor profile. Um, rate them for the, you know, whether you think they'd make a good friend. Um, and the, the humor profile we gave them was basically their own humor profile, but uh, <laughs> uh, changed so that it was either, I think it was 80% uh, the same, 50% the same, or 20% the same. <laughs> And the more and, the closer uh, it was to the, to to their own, the, the more they, more they liked them highly. Yeah, yeah. The, the person with, so, <laughs> that explains so, that explains everything. that evening at dinner. Yeah. yeah. Well, you and I have had a lot of laughter during this conversation, which I'm sorry to say is coming to an end now. But we've laughed at similar things, and I feel that we're now kind of friends. And next time I come Absolutely. to Britain, we'll have a beer together, especially if I need a new kidney from you or something like that. Well, it will be entirely my honor and pleasure, Mr. Lord. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll tell you a couple of good jokes first, and then I'll ask for the kids. Excellent, excellent. Yes, well, that's a fair swap, you know. <laughs> Before we go, we always end our shows with seven quick questions, roughly related okay. to communication. First question, what do you wish you really understood? Humans. Huh. The human social world, Alan, is the most complicated thing in the universe. It's far more complicated than quantum physics and the, you know, stuff that makes the universe as it is. It is extraordinarily complicated. It's because it's so dynamic. And we really are only scratching the surface of it. Next question. How do you tell people they have their facts wrong? <laughs> By telling them that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's efficient. You make friends that way? <laughs> no, usually not. <laughs> this is, this is why, Alan, Alan, I have no friends left. <laughs> <laughs> you thought it was just because you were getting old, older. Yeah, yeah, well, they didn't like my jokes anymore. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Hmm, 
I would say until we discovered the kind of best friend forever phenomenon, I think the one that always floored me was, don't you think that, uh, you know, there's such a thing as meeting the perfect friend or perfect romantic partner, the sort of eyes meeting across the room phenomenon, and you just know instantly this is a lifetime relationship here and i i used to say no 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 this is this this can't be true and then, <laughs> then we discovered the homophily effect that actually yes you can hear the laughter three places down the table and uh, yes, you know right <laughs> right <laughs> we, we, we've got that nailed down next question how do you stop a compulsive talker it's kind of difficult because you know often people who are compulsive talkers, you know, want to get something off their chest. And I kind of feel it's impolite and unkind not to allow them to do that. So I'm actually very bad at um, uh, discouraging them from, from talking. And I'm just grateful, Alan, that anybody will talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person. Oh, cracky. I don't know. Uh, I suppose I suppose I'm kind of at a, a bit of an advantage sometimes in the a lot of people have heard of Dunbar's number, so they're always ah. they they're inclined to strike up the conversation, which makes me very lazy, of course, then. <sighs> but that's an advantage you have there. What next to last, what gives you confidence? Ah, uh, that's an interesting question, actually. I, I think over time, uh, my personal confidence, if you like, has grown to the extent that people know about what I do, uh, 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 things like Dunbar's number. Um, I think in a, in, a in, a, in a context of a complete lot of strangers, I'm probably going to be very un un unconfident. Last question. What book changed your life? Well, it's Flatland, this wonderful Victorian book that kind of um, sees the world uh, from, if you like, different perspectives. So here's somebody who lives in a two-dimensional world. Not only did I just find it hilariously funny to read, um, but, you know, it's a kind of message for life, really, that, you know, the world is very complicated out there and you live only in one little corner of it. And uh, therefore, your knowledge of the wider world is limited by that little corner you live in. And really, you should get out there and find out about the rest of it, because most of it is really very interesting. And you've helped uncomplicate it today for me, and I appreciate our talk. I had a great time talking with you. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure, Alan, as always. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Robin Dunbar heads the Social and Evolutionary Neuroscience Research Group 
in the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Oxford. His new book is Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Nancy Padilla-Coriano. She studies what's called social competency, how in a social situation, we quickly figure out where we belong. When I give my seminar talks, I like giving this example. When, when we go to seminars in academic spaces, there's sometimes like free pizza. Imagine you're reaching for the last slide of pizza at the same time as the chair of the department is reaching for the last slide of pizza. It's probably going to take you less than a second to retract your hand. And that automatic reaction is because your brain can understand that where you're in, that person has more power than you. Nancy Padilla-Coriano and how our brains instantly sense our place in the social hierarchy. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.